slogan or banner or something that says, just say no to Dukkha. I don't mean that we shouldn't look at Dukkha or or look that looking into it deeply is not uh, greatly valuable and illuminating. It certainly is looking in and and seeing, seeing stress clearly for what it is and and really being able to, rather than just just running away or turning a blind eye or, uh, or, or separating off or trying to numb ourselves or dull our senses so that we don't, don't feel the stress, so that we don't feel the dukkha, uh, this kind of numbing or dulling or looking away, that one, that one actually, you know, it's like, what is it? I've heard it compared to the prisoner who is uh, like old-style prisoner, yeah? Old-style prisoner who has the shackle on, the chain, and then there's the ball, and the ball's got some spikes on it, and it's like you step away in one way, and yet that chain and ball are still there, so for a moment you feel like you've stepped away from it. And then that very action, the, the way that you've tried to pull away from it, then actually, after just a moment, then brings it back against you. <laughs> Somehow, it, it hits back again, it strikes back again. And the ways that we often uh, try, to, uh, try to relate to stress or, or suffering or, or dukkha, seem to often be like that, yeah? It's like it seems like it works for a moment and, and then we find that somehow we're still, um, we're still tied to it. And in one way, of course, you know, if, if you were, if you were really such a prisoner, I'm not saying that you are, uh, if you were really, then there, there are other things that can be done, like to, to turn around and to see the ball and, and say to pick it up. Uh, and to look at it, and that's very much one way uh, of of approaching stress and suffering and dukkha that is really so useful, uh, so so valuable. 
Yeah. Uh, and yet, I think it takes quite a lot of, uh, like, quite a lot of presence of mind, uh, and quite a lot of care, and quite a lot of skill, to be able to do that. Yeah. That is to be able to to turn and and pick it up and to hold what's there that might be heavy or might be you know have its have its spikes or its thorns or something on it and and how to pick it up and hold it in such a way that we can see and know uh, what it is uh, and really really learn from it and understand it and and how to be with it this is this is such a great practice this is such an enormous practice yeah uh, in terms of the Four Noble Truths really approaching the First Noble Truth. And, and then, you know, it's also so important, that practice is so important then for being able to see not only what is this, but where is it coming from? What's it made of? How is it happening? And getting into the, the Second Noble Truth. And um, <clears throat> if ignorance were to be a part of it in any way, then the knowing is a great counter for the ignorance. So if, if ignorance were a part of it and then you bring, bring the knowing to it, then that, that reverses the ignorance aspect. And if you reverse the, the ignorance aspect by bringing seeing, bringing knowing, bringing mindfulness and awareness to what's going on, uh, then, you know, for whatever was based upon ignorance, that base falls away, and the things aren't able to uh, fabricate in the same way anymore. And I found this particular practice so valuable, so useful over time, really, really excellent and valuable. And, in a way, that's not what I'm going to be talking about this evening. <laughs> but in a way it is. In a way it is. Uh, I'm going to approach this from a little bit of a different angle, yeah? Uh, and uh, this, I'll, I'll explain to you what this angle is. So for my own practice these days, this is something that's very much been coming, coming up uh, around this time and uh, something that I've been actively looking at and exploring and, and working with and um, really live, uh, living, living practice. For all of us, I think if our practice is deepening, uh, if it's going well, you may know you're cutting edge. Yeah? So I, I now I'm 45. I began to learn to meditate when I was 10. So that would be, what, 35 years? So maybe some of you have been meditating longer than me. Uh, I've only been in monastic life 25 years. This is this January is my 25, 25 year anniversary. So kind of medium amount of time in monastic life, as compared to somebody like the Venerable Pauk Sayadaw or Bhante Gunaratana or or others like this. You know, uh, Bhante Ji when he was at our hermitage, uh, the Awakening Forest Hermitage at Anyabodi uh, on the on the Sonoma Coast here, a little bit north of here. When he came to visit there, somebody asked him how long he'd been in monastic life, and he thought about it, and what did he figure? 60 years. <laughs> so, and he said, 
he said, you know, not as long as those who were his teachers, right? <laughs> Much shorter time, so he's just a novice compared to them at, uh, at 60 years, and, and now it's likely 65 since then. But he said that that's just from his full ordination. Anyway, so 25 years is a little while. 35 years is a little while. Uh, but I feel like if our practice is really, if we're really with it, if it's really alive, if we're, if we're fully engaged in it, then it has its cutting edge. And that cutting edge uh, you know, changes moment by moment, day by day. We, we can know where it's at when we wake up in the morning. If we're looking carefully, if we're looking clearly, if we're attending to what's going on, what's happening, and how does the Dhamma, how does my practice, how does the Dhamma meet this situation, what it is to wake up in the morning, what's that like, yeah? Uh, for me, due to health, sometimes I wake up feeling, oh, I don't know, shaky or dizzy or nauseous or something like that for the body. But then how do I meet that? Yeah? How does that get met and how does that get worked with? Where, where, how is that? Where is the cutting edge with the practice and what's being experienced right now in what's happening, in what's happened today and what is happening now in, in your life? Yeah? So, uh, around this time, um, I know many people know someone who is ill, someone who is going through difficulty, someone who is uh, suffering gravely, if not uh, individuals, uh, then also things in our, in our society or family groups or work or uh, whatever it may be, our country, our world, uh, other countries. Uh, do we know even if there are other forms of life that are looking at us and, oh, those poor things, oh dear, what they're going through, look, look at that, and oh my goodness, and <laughs> we don't know, we don't know, or, or maybe they're more warlike, <laughs> those peaceful humans, that's amazing, look at them meditating down there, how can, how can some of them get together like this and be, be so calm and still and peaceful when, uh, you know, we're just warring all the time. <laughs> and when we're not warring, we're playing at warring. I realized that, um, uh, that this evening, uh, like last year when I came around this time, I came on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, and so this evening also I heard is, is game night. And uh, that it might be that a number of Sangha members are actually with, with game night tonight. And I was just contemplating what, what game night is and, and the, the value of having such games that I've heard. One of the great values is that it, it keeps us under, entertained so that we don't do worse things. <laughs> and uh, that our, uh, uh, what is it, our tendencies to be warlike. They get to be channeled in, in socially condoned competition and beating each other up. <laughs> and so you can, rather than somebody jumping on somebody else and kind of clobbering them, oh dear, what happened? Oh, that's terrible. And a crime was committed. Instead, you get to go rah, rah, and hooray, that's great, and cheer for them. <laughs> 
Uh, but my goodness, uh, what is going on with this competition and uh, the need to, to jump on each other and steal things from each other and, and to have socially condoned forms of doing that and, uh, and, and to, to have something in ourselves that really feeds on that, that really, you know, wants to see these things and wants to, wants to engage in them. I was thinking even about uh, like the ongoing popularity of horror movies and uh, on, on television things like I, I visited my, uh, I went for a family visit recently and uh, my, my mother's home and there's TV and uh, what is it, some, some kind of show that they like to watch, uh, CSI. Uh, and you know, my goodness, they're killing each other. <laughs> and why on an evening that they, they would be, you know, everyone's relaxing time, then, then why watch something so tense and so dramatic and, and watch the people killing each other? And what, what do we get out of that? In a way, maybe it seems like that makes us safe because we think we're in control and it's not real. It's just a TV show and we can turn it off anytime we want to, so it makes the whole, doesn't make the whole kind of thing seem safe in a way, or that we're in a position of power with it all somehow because, because we watch it but we feel in a way that's not me. In a way I have the power to turn it off and to walk away at any moment. You know, I, I wasn't watching for some time and, and staying out in the woods. Uh, I, I love the woods. Our hermitage is in the forest. Normally I don't feel scared there. Even I hear the cries of the cougar and wild animals. And, uh, uh, and normally I, you know, I just feel that's so beautiful to, to hear the, the forest and, uh, and nature, being nature and all of that. And yet, even with CSI peripheral like this, then I walked into the room where I was staying afterwards and the oh, darkness outside, the curtains are open, maybe there's an axe murderer out there. <laughs> How these things can come into, our, come into our minds and close the curtains. <laughs> Who knows, you know, what's out there lurking lurking in the forest, yeah, and then, then chuckling at myself a little bit about um, how, these, how these ideas can come into our minds and, and become live, yeah. Um, so this is something that I want to look a bit at this evening, that is uh, taking a look at our, our interest in things that are really actually quite stressful maybe stressful, maybe violent, maybe, you know, competitive, maybe various kinds of, kinds of drama. And uh, uh, even often it's very mixed. It's like a love-hate relationship. And we don't like it, but we're interested and we feel compelled to, to see it. Or some kind of news and it's like, oh no, that's horrible. And we click on it and then we're reading the whole story and oh, that's awful. And then go to bed feeling so terrible and, and this kind of thing. What's, what's going on in our world? And, and why, why were we interested to enter into that and to engage in it in such a way? 
Yeah? What, what is that uh, in us that, that makes us attracted to the, the gossip or getting the dirt or, uh, or, or in these games or, or whatever the things might be? Or even, even maybe it's a, you know, it's a close family member or loved one and there's some kind of news about them. And then that news turns on, we hear that news, and then something about that, some, some kind of awfulness or negative emotion or the whole kind of the flood. The Buddha called this the, the flood. It's like getting swept away by this flood of, uh, of emotion that then you know, we, we get drawn into it and compelled and then carried carried away by it somehow and maybe a few days later we wake up and oh you know what a nightmare what a nightmare that was and how how did that happen how did I end up engaged in this this thing that's so difficult so afflictive in such a way in such a way yeah in such a difficult way because certainly there are the very different ways that we can look at all kinds of things and that we can choicefully uh, enter into them or not enter into them or choose how we're going to be uh, with them. So tonight I want to talk about um, uh, this, this particular, uh, particular practice of seeing such things. such dynamics in their various and, and manifest forms and uh, being choiceful, knowing that we, we have a choice about how we pick the things up and how we enter into them or whether, whether we do whether we enter into them or not. Yeah. And uh, for how many of you is this a part of your practice already? One, two, three, four. Wait, did you raise your hands before? <laughs> Five? Yes? That's a good number of you. A good number of you. So, a few days ago, uh, there's a friend who's going through some really kind of grave, grave hardship and that flood that I talked about seems like really kind of getting swept away in that, in that flood. And then there are some other friends who then in association, it's like something has, I don't know, caught fire, if it were fire or if it were water, it's like the flood is sweeping away not only one person, but then, then that flood came by with one person and they grabbed onto somebody else and then others are, others are coming into that flood. Yeah? And then seeing that and feeling that, that, that possibility, that sense of like walking and coming upon a... a well, now we don't have it so much this year. Uh, our lakes are, what is it, the little pond by our vihara is mostly dry. 
Our Dharma Creek is not this time of year. Often it would be flowing very strongly. And I want to share with you the great analogy of coming down on the very full and and roaring uh, creek and seeing the logs getting swept away and the great boulders getting swept away and that kind of thing. Such a powerful experience. So coming, coming upon what is emotionally and psychically like this and seeing it and then stopping for a moment and seeing what it is and making the choice do we take one step further and put our feet into it and uh, go white water rafting or <laughs> underwater rafting or under raft watering or whatever <laughs> Whatever, whatever that may be, or, uh, or, or is it seeing the now this time we don't have so much water, so there's more scare about the fire. Is it like, uh, what is it? The wind turns, the fire starts coming closer to us, and and do we, do we ourselves move by that wind and come in together with the flaring and the blaze of that fire, or or not? Yeah. So I've been finding this during this time, this this particular practice, so so useful uh, to really look at in so many ways. I've been talking about now um, relationship dynamics with with people, other people, and emotion. I feel like this is also very important in our relationship with. I'll say just as a figure of speech with our own bodies. I don't mean that these bodies are really ours. Uh, I mean they're changing all the time and uh, uh, I'm not sure if they're really, really proper to call a possession uh, or not. Uh, when when the, the Buddha was asking some monks about this, if if it's changing and if it's inconstant, is it really correct to call uh, yourself properly? Is that is that really like ultimately? Is that your yourself? Like a, that that river that we were talking about, not the same in any any two places, shifting every moment. And uh, uh, would that be correct to really, really ultimately, essentially call yourself? But relationship with the great flow, um, the the elements the energies uh, and their, their flow uh, that we call this body. So, for example, during the sitting meditation time that we just had before, uh, for the body, for hearing, for the sound of the traffic, I don't know for any one of you uh, if you might have found the sound of traffic annoying or if you might have found it peaceful, or if you might have found it uh, easy to ignore or tune out. But just interesting to see, is there something in the mind that goes out to even the simple things with the body, what's seen or what's heard in a way that then makes stress, makes affliction, grabs on and snags 
whatever is being uh, experienced and then relates to it in a kind of a, oh, like wrestlers or something, or sword play or uh, something that, that you know, gloms onto and engages with what's being seen or heard in a way that is stressful, in a way that's afflictive. Yeah. And if it does, if that ever happens to you, again, if it's possible to realize that that's happening, and then to realize that also it's possible to not do that. That there's the simple choice to, to not do that, to relate to it in a different way, to choose a different way to see or to hear or for touch, as we were talking about the body, for physical sensation. This is an enormous one for so many of us because of pain, because of physical pain or other kinds of physical sensations that we might not, uh, is it, that are not pleasant. or even sometimes neutral sensations. There can be something in the mind that's like a craving experience. And that something in the mind then scans what's going on with the body. Nothing of interest happening. And then it feels dissatisfied because of nothing going on as if, uh, what is it, that same kind of mind that goes to look at the news and says, oh, nothing happening today, and goes to dissatisfaction because of the craving for, for some, kind of, some kind of experience. Something other than thinking that there not being anything that's not interesting boring, dull, and then dis, dissatisfying. It's said that when ignorance is strong in the mind, and craving is strong in the mind, and grasping is strong in the mind, then when our mind starts to settle, and the field starts to clear, then dissatisfaction <laughs> comes because that craving that's used to feeding on something <laughs> is not getting what it's used to feeding on and then it starts to go look for something. And then it starts to go look for some s sensation to do something with or it starts to go look for some sound or some visual image making some imagination or or spinning out some story or this kind of thing it's like turning on our tv in our in our bodies and minds to uh for it to feed for it to have something to be chewing on and to be consuming like the cow kind of chewing its cud is chewing on or grazing chewing on one thing and chewing on another thing and chewing on another thing yeah so it's said that when ignorance becomes less in the mind, 
when mindfulness becomes stronger, when awareness becomes stronger, then craving becomes less, clinging and attachment becomes less for that person, then in the absence of uh, painful or, or pleasant uh, sensations for that one, there is upega. Upega. Even, I love the Pali word upega. When I say equanimity, it seems like to me still equanimity doesn't have the same kind of really beautiful ring that the upega does. Yeah? But I have to say equanimity. Equanimity. So beautiful. The steadiness, clearness, balance, ease, coherence, integrity, loveliness of the mind, of the heart, when it's in balance. And when it's not, you know, not off balance because of the tipping towards wanting to grasp something else, get something else, longing for something else, craving something else. It's really, it, it's dukkha. It's dukkha. Yeah? That not being able to be at ease with just what is, with what there is, right here and now, in the present moment, in, in our experience, being able to just be, be calm and peaceful and, and at ease with that whatever that is, whatever is arising, whether we're uh, moving or non-moving, choosing to act in a particular way or not. Yeah, but that kind of, uh, is it steadiness, ease? This is one of the lovely things that I find with this path and with this practice over time. Such a beautiful thing. Sometimes people mention that they're afraid this is a kind of nihilism. It feels to me like just the opposite. How amazing that as human beings we can become not only happy with less, not only truly happy with less, but how amazing that we can be most happy with absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> Such an incredible thing. Such an incredible thing. That, that just being with what's, you know, not, not needing, not feeling like we need anything more, not feeling like we need to be grasping the next thing, not feeling like something else must be better or, or like this, but the absence of, uh, of those qualities in the mind. In their absence, then the mind itself, the heart itself is so innately beautiful, so lovely. It's such a beautiful, beautiful experience. Nothing like the dreaded, what is it, the dreaded void. Yeah. In fact, the only thing that uh, I think 
the only thing that would have to fear this experience would not be ourselves, but would be craving itself, or attachment itself. Yeah? Because in such experience, uh, at least unwholesome craving doesn't get fed. And not getting fed, uh, there can be the feelings of like a weaning off. Yeah? If we, if we identify closely with the craving, we could feel that we're on a diet. We could feel that feeling of like being on a diet because the, the craving, the clinging, the attachment is not getting fed in that experience. If we understand that craving is not self, that attachment is not self, that we're just as much ourselves without it. In fact, we might feel even, and I'm just using language again, just language, but the feeling is like, really like, it's like discovering our true self. It's like discovering our true nature, like discovering our true being. Again, I'm just using really inadequate language, but in the absence of, uh, of afflictive mental states in the mind, in their absence, it seems like, oh, no, this is, this is really, this is really what I'm made of. This is the ground of my being. This is the essence, yeah? People have that perception. They have that experience. That's what people may experience. So it's actually worth it for the craving. It's important to know. It's not ourself. Craving can be more. If it gets fed more, normally it gets stronger. Whether it's craving for whatever it's craving for. And it can be less. And even there are the moments where we can see it seems practically invisible or not present at all. And when we have such an experience, we realize then truly that craving is stress. When it arrives, arises again and the mind tips in that inclination towards the longing and seeking for something other than what we, we're just so happy to be experiencing right now, and it tips into the delusion of there's something else, something better, something other, not, that's not this, then we realize that's tipping off of balance and that's stress. It's stress. It's a stress that drives us on, that compels us, that fuels endless seeking, that as it gets fed, just craves more. <laughs> yes, I think this has been a base for our capitalism in a way, and it may have gotten us into quite a bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah, we thought our resources are unlimited, <laughs> and so we can just keep going up and up and up in our desires and our consumption, and, and then there may be more planets, and we can go to outer space, and we can consume more worlds, right? <laughs> maybe resources there, there are good resources to get and we can make more things and we can consume more <laughs> and that would be really good for our economy and, and, and the line will just go up to the stars and out to the planets and that will be excellent, right? And, and we can consume more worlds, more universes and wow, like a fungus we can spread throughout the entire galaxy. <laughs> And that will be fantastic. And, you know, the prophets will go through the ceiling and 
and and all of that but whoa wait a minute <laughs> is that the only way that we can relate to our world is with such a mind of consumption like we're going to consume everything and everybody here and each other and uh, really the consumer mind all the human beings are commodities all the animals are commodities all the minerals are commodities the sky the earth the air the water the everything you know even the sun is a commodity and and all of that and just this you know strong burning <laughs> this consuming 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 yes but you know i think Oh, like I studied a little bit, and human beings have been around Ayasubhijana for how many million years, do we think? I'm, I'm sorry, now I realize, I'm suddenly realizing, oh, I'm in a church and I'm sitting up here and I'm saying, <laughs> human beings have been around for, we think by science, the scientists say that human beings have been around for quite a few million years, yeah? And, uh, and we understand that this way of... Um, like kind of major consumerism consumption thing going on with our with our planet and and with each other may have existed earlier on but not quite in, to the scale <laughs> and and to the what is it with that scale to the incredible destructive uh, power that we have going on now, yeah? And even just a little while ago, just, uh, you know, two or three thousand years ago, with human beings not having all the things that we have now, then we have the people living with less, choosing to, to live with less, and finding great happiness in that. Yeah, amazingly, amazingly so. And relating to each other in very different ways, different kinds of ways, um, peaceful ways, um, with, with kindness, uh, cultures in which generosity is really strong. And, uh, hmm, this thing about a kind of uh, a balance, I think, in a way, a balance with our, with our environment, our, our relationship to our environment, may for some people sometimes have been quite, quite different. So that is a possibility for our humanity, yeah? Do you think we've gone too far? That there's no going back? I put it just as an open question. How about on the individual level? Have we gone too far? Can we come to a way of being where the, the craving and the consumerism and, and all of that can, can calm can ease, can come to tranquility such that we can experience the, the natural peacefulness and beauty that is part of our humanity. 
part of what our bodies and minds are, uh, are wired, I want to say are wired, I mean built for. I'm not saying any builder, about any builder. The Buddha had mentioned that karma is the builder. And uh, actually, from the, from the standpoint of Buddhism, to have a human body and mind is a very favorable circumstance for being able to do exactly, exactly what we're talking about. Like we have the we have the equipment, we have all that we need to be able to uh, experience what we're talking about. This is human, very human experience, part of the nature of our humanity. So I've been appreciating these days, uh, just around this time. Oh. I think how beautiful it is and how blissful it is to see the opportunity to step into more suffering, to engage with things in more stressful ways, and to also see that that's not necessarily what needs to be done, and that there are other ways to see and other ways to be with, and other ways to abide, even just by ourselves. I love silence and seclusion, and, and to just abide in uh, the, you know, the, the, beautiful, uh, the beautiful states of mind that we, we come with, in a way. Or that at least are part of our genetic potential with the body and mind that we come with. That if it's touched into, if it's turned on, if it's allowed to, uh, to, what is it, just a little bit of activation. Like I was reading this last week about uh, new studies about how it's being seen that mindfulness changes our genes, changes our genetic expression, yeah? To me, in one way, it's like, that's really interesting. That's, uh, that's so amazing. And in another way, I feel like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> Not phrased in that kind of way, but when we meditate and when we practice this path, we realize that what we've got going on in our, in our bodies is very, even at a very, very deep and fundamental level, is really greatly affected by our minds and by how we choose to keep our mind. And this mindfulness practice is a choiceful practice, right? That's part of mindfulness, is it's intentional. There's intentionality. You're choosing a particular way uh, to see and to be with phenomena, internal and external of body and of feelings and of mind in particular ways that are healthy and wholesome and activate a potential in us. Changing our genetic expression, something turns on in us in the very, very base structures of our body that enables a different experience of life and actualizes it 
is able to actualize it. Yeah? What an amazing thing that that's possible and that each one of us has that in us and that there are teachings that have been passed down together with so many other things, enormous bodies of knowledge that may not relate much to uh, human suffering or, or well-being sometimes so much at all, but just enormous bodies of knowledge passed down. Sometimes I feel like with all our interest in other things like football and everything else, uh, that, uh, uh, or, or, or warfare, or, I mean, I think an enormous part of our budget in taxes is, it, that's one of the big, 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 big things, right? Uh, very, very, very big things. So I think like really, really, really important. Uh, um, but for all of our enormous fascination with so many kinds of things and all of the energy and resources that we pour into them, sometimes I feel like it's really amazing that such a teaching actually has been able to be passed down. And amazing that we've got it in a language that we can, that we can understand or it's interesting to delve into even if we don't understand. And as we delve into it, it opens our mind and opens up these new policy, uh, possibilities, ways of looking at seeing things, ways of being uh, with things that are different. And again, I would say, although there, there may not be a study about it yet, I would say that also, not only mindfulness, but my guess is the other factors of awakening as well also affect our genetic expression. Looking into Dhamma, investigation of Dhamma is one of the factors of awakening. Yeah? And how does it happen? How does that happen? That there can be a shift and a realignment somehow in our vision, we experience it in our senses, also in our mind. We're able to look into and see them, see everything differently. How amazing, how amazing. So I deeply appreciate that, uh, that this teaching and practice has been passed down and, and living it every single day. I admit to sometimes then taking it for granted that it's just here and we have it and it's part of human life and I'm just doing this every single day and like that. But then there are other times where I stop and think, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing that we have that. It's amazing that it's come to us. And in many other places, in many other times, especially due to warfare, entire Buddhist teaching gone up in flames or destroyed, yeah? Fortunately, in, in country after country actually it's happened, yeah? Even like all these days, um, people think about a country like Thailand as being a Buddhist country and many Buddhist images and you know, paintings and statues and temples and stupas and pagodas and an enormous amount of monks and things like that. And yet, there's one elder monk that I know still alive right now. Um, is it Lung Ta Chi? Uh, I was looking at his picture a couple of days ago. I think he's still alive, do you know? Yeah. 
Someone's saying he might have passed away. Well, I'm not sure. He was alive until recently, and I was just seeing his picture. <laughs> so many people have passed away in these last couple of weeks. It's really quite a lot. A uh, good number of people that I know, and maybe you too. Um, but uh, he remembered the time in Thailand when meditation was illegal. So preparing for a retreat for him one time, then I was asked to research his life and to put out his bio in order to prepare for the retreat. And so I was learning and studying about his life. And at that time, communism was getting to be really popular and was coming into the country. And a lot of people were thinking, you know, maybe communism is a better way to go. And, and, and somehow then people got scared of meditation as if it were something magical or mystical or woo-woo or something like this, or that it gave people power that people couldn't have or, or these kinds of things. And meditation was made illegal. And he kept teaching meditation as a Buddhist monk. And he was imprisoned for it. So I thought, wow, is this the same Thailand that I visited that has so many monks and there are all these great meditation teachers and, and you know, and, and wow, such an amazing, amazing tradition. We take, we take for granted that that's going to last forever and it's been going on forever, but no, not at all the case, yeah. So within his lifetime, uh, he's not so much older, might be the same age as even some in this room. Uh, and uh, so meditation was made illegal, and he was put in prison. And in prison, this is the kind of nice part about the story, so he's in prison for teaching meditation as a Buddhist monk. And then some prisoners asked, well, we're in prison together, can you teach us meditation? <laughs> and he thought that would be a really good idea. Even there are some things about prison that are similar to monasteries, and let's take advantage of this situation. As long as we're in prison together, let's make good. And so he, he asked for permission, uh, then from the prison authorities, whether he could have the prison meditation group or not. And the authorities then allowed that he have a prison meditation group. And his prison meditation group started small, but then the word got around amongst the prisoners that rather than being really upset and rather than beating each other up and rather than this kind of thing, the meditators started to, you know, have a nice experience. <laughs> and, and they got much better with each other and the whole violence was decreasing and more and more people were starting to want to come to the prison meditation group until he had a couple of thousand people who were in his prison meditation group. But before that happened, then some of the guards asked if they could join. <laughs> and, so, and so then some of the guards were able to join, but then some of the higher prison officials thought, you know, the, the prisoners are meditating and they seem to be really benefiting. They're looking bright and then the guards are also having much less stress and they're, they're looking beautiful and their eyes are bright and they're calm and relaxed and, and everything's getting so much less stressful in this prison uh, with these meditation groups going on. Remember he was incarcerated. It's not that he was just a prison chaplain and coming once a week to lead a group like we have in the United States a lot. He had groups every single day. <laughs> So, um, and more and more people started participating in his group and then there were some higher ups 
than in the prison who also, you know, you know, why should just the guards and the prisoners be able to do this and then some higher-ups in the prison were also then participating and then basically the whole prison community, the whole prison became a, largely became a kind of sankha. And yeah, it's a true story. I researched it and I know him. He's alive, was alive till recently. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that he hurt his. Uh, I had heard recently that he hurt his back and that he was. He's quite quite elderly now. That he hurt his back and was quite incapacitated, but still he was teaching meditation <laughs> and practicing himself. And 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 I wanted to know is he is he okay? And the monk that I asked if he was okay said, "Yes, he's completely fine. He can't get up, but he's completely fine." <laughs> you know. And uh, as if I would understand, and I do understand. Uh, anyway, so then, then we had quite a lot of people in the prison, and then the story goes on a little bit more. There were then some royalty who then heard that the higher-ups were in the prison, and then also some military officials and others then would, you know, then have drop-in prison visit and just participate in the prison dhamma sankha just to see what's going on with it, you know, and be sure just to observe, right? And then a few more of them, and then also even some of the royalty uh, and, and other government folks then, you know, just coming to, uh, to inspect what was going on with this uh, prison Dhamma Sangha. Yes? Uh, and, yeah, so uh, later on then the, the law shifted and changed and he was released from prison and that was many years ago and, uh, and a whole lot of other meditators <laughs> were, uh, were, also, uh, were also released and let loose upon the populace. <laughs> somebody, somebody shared a kind of joke news article with me also. It said something, it showed one, uh, one Buddhist monk meditating and it said, um, uh, such and such monk threatens to unleash tranquility upon the world. <laughs> it's kind of cute, yeah. It's one of these bogus, it, it looks like real news, the way that it's designed, like it, it, it is made to look like a TV screen that has the caption going across it and this kind of thing, but it's just the play news. Um, but but really, so they they, they as as the climate changed, they re re unleashed the meditators upon the world, and that spread out then in our uh, in our modern culture from many different directions. But I I just say that because um, it makes me realize oh we shouldn't take it for granted. This is actually something that um, we don't know how long it's going to be uh, going to be possible. Uh, for us or for uh, for our society to enjoy the kinds of freedoms that it has in so many ways, uh, including most wonderfully uh, this uh, particular way, yeah, where some other parts of the world uh, it wouldn't be so okay, wouldn't might not be okay, yeah, at this time. So these human bodies wired in the way they are, limited time opportunity. And such social circumstances uh, with all of their uh, difficulties and challenges also, limited time opportunity that we're enjoying here. 
And uh, I don't mean to compare us really to, uh, to a prison or, or prisoners too much, but uh, even if we were to think so darkly, there are certainly opportunities that are there for, for different ways of uh, being, not to mention with the great freedom that, uh, that we enjoy. Yeah, so how we see what's going on. Hmm. The arising of patterns of stress or of dukkha. And um, how, we, how we choose to relate uh, to them, uh, to engage or not to engage, or how to, uh, how to be with. Um, such an important part of mindfulness as being really the hub and the crux of the path, having this perspective that we really can see uh, everything and stop and make such choice uh, with mindfulness and then choose and work with, work with how we engage uh, with the things. What are we feeding? Are we feeding craving? Are we feeding attachment? Just to check in ourselves and see. Are we giving space? Are we allowing space for the wholesome and beautiful and healthy uh, natural uh, states of mind that are there or may be there if we allow the other things to vacate the feeding ground? Uh, really, it looks like that to me sometimes. Truly, it looks like that. It's like all there, the, there are all these different potentials that would like to come and feed, yeah? And do we, do we allow them to or not? If that's our mind ground, the ground of, the ground of our, our heart, the ground of our experience, which is really, do, do any of us know what is outside of our mind, our experience, it's the, the domain, the, the domain of our entire life, the entire domain of our life. So being able to see these, these, these forces, know that they may or may not be a part of our heart and mind, if they get to feed, if they find this a good feeding ground, they'll come back again. <laughs> yeah? uh, certainly. <laughs> All forms of life are looking for something good to eat. Yeah? Whatever kind of craving it may be. But to also know that there's more than that. Yes, the wholesome is good to nurture too, and good to nourish also. And yet, there's another kind of wholesome that is different than that, that's other than that, that is the, the absence of the craving, that is just perfect and beautiful and peaceful and content, satisfied unto itself in its very nature, in, in our very nature, whatever, whatever we might like to call that uh, or not. 
not call that the unfabricated, the undiluted, 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 uh, unconditioned, uh, and yet experienceable uh, for for all of us, you know, part part and parcel of of what we are, uh, of what we've come with. So I'd like to uh, uh, end my Dhamma reflection right here, and um, mm, thank you very much for your uh, for your kind attention. And I want to invite you uh, for whatever useful, beneficial Dhamma you may have sensed in any way or that you've received in any way to please keep it well as if it were the most valuable treasure resource of our entire lives and for whatever is not valuable, blessed, useful and beneficial whether here or anywhere else to please don't carry what you don't have to carry don't feed what you don't have to feed uh, let it let it be uh, mm-hmm. so we have loving kindness and uh, well wishes to all of us on the path our path of practice together Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.